so um, yes, it's nice to sing Christmas songs. We are finally there. I mean, we're getting there, <laughs> and uh, we're looking at um, the uh, Advent kind of Advent series from last Sunday. Uh, today we're looking at Micah chapter five, Micah chapter five, verse one to nine, and. Uh, I just read out a prayer uh, written by Walter Bergman, and he talks about waiting, right? Advent is the season of waiting, of anticipating uh, for God's work. So today for our reflection, I wanted to just think together and ask, what does it mean to wait? What does it mean to wait for Jesus? And what does it mean to anticipate the coming of Jesus? And I think... In our world today, we know a fair bit about waiting and anticipating for something to come, especially when you order something and in a day and age of one day delivery, waiting is such a painful thing. Uh, so we do know a few bit about waiting, but um, uh, we want to put that in context of Micah and, and learn uh, what it means, what it meant for the people of God to, to wait. Here's something that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about Advent and about waiting. He writes like this from a prison cell. He was imprisoned by the, uh, because for his opposition to Hitler and his, uh, and his program. So he's in a prison cell and he writes this. Life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, and does this, that, or the other. Things that are of no real consequence because the door is shut and it can be only opened from the outside. This is, um, he wrote this in 1943. Um, and yeah, so waiting, we're waiting for something, but what are we waiting for? And what does it mean to, to wait? So our focus today is on waiting and more specifically, where, what, is, what, did, what does Micah tell us about waiting for the peace from Bethlehem? So that's the, uh, the overall like, broad uh, context for today. Um, and we'll just jump right into the text. Uh, so Micah chapter 5, verse 1 to 9. Uh, let's read first verse 1. Uh, the, it's washed out. It's supposed to be white font. I, I'm afraid you have to look in your own Bibles or something. So Micah chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against you. They will strike Israel's ruler, on the cheek with a rod. So that's verse one. Right off the bat, we are thrown into this scene of action and violence, right? We're jumping in right into the action, so to say. And in, when chapter five, verse one opens, we, we, we see this scene of impending violence, impending warfare. And just, we need to understand the context here. Micah was written 750 to 700 BC before Christ. And the, the, the kings who were active around this time uh, were King Jotham, King Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And you read about these kings in the book of 2 Kings. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all these chapters were about the kings that operated during Micah's time. And Micah and Isaiah, the text that we saw last Sunday, they, they were around the same time. So they're writing about similar things. And this was a time of relative peace and relative prosperity. Um, 
they, they, they were steady to a certain extent. They had peace with neighboring, uh, their neighboring kingdoms. And they were, they were hopeful about their future. But inside, they were, it was also a tumultuous time. Uh, there was internal rot in, in, the, in the kingdom in the, uh, among the people of Israel. Uh, there were undercurrents of crisis, and there's some sense of fear that something terrible is about to happen. And there are some crucial factors uh, that, that explains why this was the situation. And I want to just dwell on this a little bit, okay, the historical context a little bit. I don't want to move away too fast from this context and think about, okay, what does this mean to me? Or like, what, what's the remedy? What's the solution to this? I, I, I want to dwell on the, the, the crisis, the moment for a bit, uh, because I don't want, again, to look too, much, too much prematurely for application. What does this mean to me today? So let's dwell on what was going on at that time. Um, so if we dig in a little deeper and we put ourselves in the shoes of the people reading this in the first place, uh, we can begin to understand their sentiments. And only in that understanding can we really understand Advent, the meaning of Advent, what it meant for them to wait for God, right? What it meant for them to wait for Messiah. And without understanding this historical, this almost uh, violent history, we, we will we will just be applying general ideas about waiting, general ideas about Savior. So let's uh, just pitch our tents here for the next few minutes and, um, and try and understand what was going on with them. So during this time, I think there's, I put a diagram of the Northern and the Southern Kingdom. The next slide, sorry. Um, so as some of you might know, during this time, the, the people of Israel was broken into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom uh, comprised of um, ten tribes, and the southern kingdom, the last remaining tribes. And there were conflicts between these two. And so there was this internal turmoil within the people. Uh, as I mentioned, this was a time of relative uh, prosperity. Uh, and I, I was very, it was very interesting for me to learn that this was a time of economic innovation when the people moved from like barter system where they traded stuff for stuff to uh, a money mercantile system where they 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 buy things with money uh, and because of that it gave a lot of opportunities for corruption a lot of opportunities for theft for hoarding like for the rich people the powerful the uh, those in the authorities to hoard to bribe um, and so even though this was a time of prosperity and economic innovation, this was also a time of rot, internal rot. There's, uh, there's wickedness all around. And in fact, if you read the whole book of Micah in chapter 3, there's a very strong language used by Micah against the kings, the wicked rulers and the wicked prophets. In fact, it says here in Micah chapter 3 verse 11, and I quote, rulers give judgment for a bribe. It's priests teach for a price. Its prophets gave oracles for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, surely the Lord is with us. No harm can come upon us. So here Micah is pointing out that the rulers, the kings who are supposed, the, 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 those in authority who are supposed to be taking care of the subjects were abusing their power, were taking bribes, and were, um, the teachers were teaching for a profit. Uh, for, a, for a price. 
In fact, he says that even the prophets who were supposed to be prophesying God's word were, you know, uh, according to where the money is, their message was being diverted. Um, um, and, and yet they, and, and they prophesy these feel-good messages for money and say, the peace is upon us. No harm is going to befall us. Peace in our land. We are prosperous. God is with us. That's the kind of scenario that we see uh, the people experiencing here. So that's the internal rot. At the same time, there's also an external threat. Uh, and I put it in the nice, next slide. The external threat was this, um, this marvelous kingdom of, of Assyria. This was a time when Assyrian, the Assyrian kingdom was at their heights. Uh, I think it's the next slide. This, of course, this is just a recreation, but this is what artists uh, believe that the capital Nimrud of Assyria looked like in its heyday. Um, just, just to put it in geographical, geographical context, Assyrian kingdom would have been in present-day Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, uh, Syria, all that, Turkey, uh, huge uh, area of land that they ruled, and the, the capital was in its heyday, it was at a height. And, uh, and again, it's very interesting to read the historical context and learn that uh, the the advanced technological advancement of using bronze and metal for warfare gave them new energy because the Assyrians were around from 2000 BC, but it was around this time, 708 BC, that they, they got new energies because of the technology and they started the so-called the Neo-Assyrian, uh, 8th century, 7th century, and they expanded in all of these areas and they became a threat to the people of Israel. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. The external threat of Assyrian, this massive and um, impressive looking kingdom where in at their threshold and they were about they, it's there's whispers of war there's uh, the whispers that they would invade they would attack so they were living in this kind of precarious situation internal rot external threat it feels like something's going to happen something's about to boil over um, and these were people who were living in the threat of war and violence in this context Micah comes to them and says yes Assyria will invade you. He prophesied, your rulers will be struck. If you go back, um, I mean, if you look back at the verse one, just think about the, the visceral language that, that is used here. They will strike your rulers on the cheek with a rod. I mean, you can almost feel that, that language, right? Uh, it's a language of, of being struck. You, you and your rulers will be struck. Um, and this, of course, happened um, as we read in history and also recorded in 2 Kings chapter 17. Uh, the Assyrians invaded and the people of Israel were, uh, the northern kingdom first were attacked. So that's the context that we, we, we read here. Um, compared to the, the, the prophecies that were bought with money, saying our land is in peace, we are in prosperous, compared to such feel-good messages, Micah's message comes and, say, uh, comes and says, there's no peace. War is coming to you. Judgment is coming to you. Um, your rulers will be struck and the Assyrians will attack. The nations are gathering around you, as chapter 4, verse 11 says, uh, Micah says in chapter 4, verse 11. So internal rot, internal turmoil, and external threat. Um, then Micah's message comes in. Yeah, so we continue reading in verse 2, I think. Um, so verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
though you are small among the clans of Judah. Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So this message of hope comes in at this moment. The Assyrians are coming and they are assuredly coming. And yet Micah gives this vision, this vision of hope, this picture that uh, there will be a ruler. So first of all, there will be redemption. Redemption and peace will come to you. Even though you are struck by the Assyrians, there will be redemption for you. There will be rescue from Assyria. Think about it. Assyrians and the, the capital Nimrod and all of that imagery of power and splendor, there will be redemption from that, that powerful force. He goes in verse 4, in fact, he says, His greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Right? Ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old, and his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. God's salvation, God's redemption for, of Israel is coming, and it's coming to an extent that it will reach to the ends of the earth. And we keep on reading in, uh, in verse 5. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. Again, remarkable pictures, image, imagery is given here that God will rescue his people and he will help defeating the Assyrians. So if, we, if you are to summarize very quickly the first few verses here, God's redemption is coming. God's uh, salvation is coming from the, from the powers of Assyria. And what's most remarkable about this piece is that he says God's, God's redemption will come from the place you least expected. It's not coming from Jerusalem. It's not coming from the powers of, uh, of the world. It's coming from Bethlehem, the, the backwaters, so to say. The small town of Bethlehem, where you least expect it. God's salvation, God's redemption is coming from Bethlehem. Compared to Bethlehem, Jerusalem has been struck down. Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, has been struck down. Nimrud, the, the capital of Assyrians, will be struck down. Elsewhere, we read that Nineveh, the later capital of Assyria, also will be struck down. All these big cities, big places are struck down. But... God's salvation comes from Bethlehem, the least of all Bethlehem, the place that you least expect, uh, expected. And again, we know from history that the Neo-Assyrian expansion, this, this great kingdom, collapsed, collapsed eventually. They were overtaken by Babylon. And Babylon was overtaken by Cyrus and on and on. And these kingdoms rise and fall. But God's redemption is promised to have come from Bethlehem. We keep reading in verse 7. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, 
which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flock of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be de destroyed. So that's the uh, remarkable message of Micah, that the ruler is coming. The ruler is coming to rescue you. And he's going to come from the place that you least expected. He's going to come from Bethlehem. This, of course, is reminiscent of Isaiah 40, the text we looked at last Sunday. In last Sunday's text, Isaiah tells the people who were exiled in Babylon, right? Far away in, the, in a foreign land. Uh, Isaiah tells them, God will come to you. God will, come, God will um, level the mountains that are blocking his way. God will lift up the valleys that are blocking his way. God is going to come to you. Like, he's going to come and rescue you swiftly and surely. Um, he's going to come to where they are. And here, the same message applies. Uh, remember, Isaiah and Micah were writing around the same time. Uh, here, Micah also reminds them, the ruler will come to rescue you surely from Assyria. So we see the same motif that he will lead his flock like a shepherd. Uh, the shepherd is coming who will, who will take care of you, who will comfort you and uh, give you peace. So this, this is a message for embattled people. People who were living in violence in the middle of threats and, and destruction. People who were, or at least people who would soon be worn out with war and with threats. Uh, and longing for redemption, right? longing for some peace, just so that they can just lay down their, uh, their uh, um, just relax and just be at peace for, for a bit, uh, stressed out with the, the news and the ex existential experience of war. This, were, this is a message that comes to embattled people of Israel. Advent, then. Advent comes in that context of a people who are steeped in captivity who are oppressed, who, are, who experience violence in their lives, right, viscerally, and who are longing for peace, who are longing for that shalom, that wholeness that prophets keep talking about, but where is it? And they're longing, they're just waiting for that to unfold and to be realized in their lives, that experience of flourishing that has been promised in that day when there will be no wars and no conflict, no oppression, no corruption, no idolatry. There's a wonderful um, phrase that comes in the book of Micah. Also, it comes in, in the book of Isaiah. It says, the swords will be um, transformed or made to plowshares. The, the sword, which is, which is the tool of destruction, will be transformed or will be beaten to make a plowshare, to, to work, to work the grounds and to produce fruits. What a, what a beautiful image, right? I mean, obviously, the image of swords to plowshares have, been, have really resonated with a lot of people. And this motif has been uh, captured in many other places like the United Nations. Um, a lot of uh, American presidents have appealed to that image to end war, uh, the image of sword to plowshare. And that's the image that we have here, that when, when the, the Redeemer comes, the sword will be transformed to plowshare. So they're waiting for the peace of Bethlehem. And this is, this is who 
This is what the, the people, in, um, people in Israel were waiting for. But let's be honest, there's something, a bit of a disconnect as far as this text is concerned. Because yes, there's, there was redemption for the people of Israel. There was redemption from Assyria. There's redemption from Babylon, from Darius, I mean, from Persia and all of that. But, but there's something more, right? There's some, obviously something more that these prophecies were hinting at. Not just the immediate unfolding of history, not just the Im immediate needs of being redeemed from these countries, from these uh, kingdoms. There was something more that it was hinting and looking forward to. And of course, that is uh, the coming of Christ, the coming of Messiah. So if, even though these texts talk about Assyria, Babylon, and, uh, and all these kings, there's also a broader and a, a, a bigger uh, prophecy that that is not hidden but that's that's uh, that's that is here in this text uh, not just the immediate assyrian situation but the let's call it the eternal the cosmic uh, aspect which is about jesus right and this is brought to uh, to clear clarity in matthew chapter 2 verse 4 to 6 you may recall this event when the the wise men from the east the magi uh, came looking for this king they have seen his star and they come looking for the king and as they would expect they go first to the king's house and ask your where's your king where's the king that has been born we have seen his star we have come to worship him and herod and his uh his people were like what's going on like they're all, they were all sent into a panic and herod tells his priest like go and hunt like what's going on who where is this guy where's this king going to be born and his his, uh, his uh, priest, his uh, religious um, teachers studied the text and they came to this text, Micah 5, uh, 1 to 9. And he, they, they go to Herod and tells him, the Christ, the king, will be born in Bethlehem. This is the prophecy that talks about him. And I'm sure Herod must be like, Bethlehem? Like, what's there? Like, isn't, isn't that the backwater, the rural area? Like, what's, what's there like? How can we expect a king to be born there? But uh, that's what Micah is. And uh, as we know the story, Jesus was born in, in Bethlehem. And of course, this upsets the expectations. The Christ, the Messiah, as you may have uh, already visualized from here, the, the, the expectation of Christ is huge, right? We're talking about somebody who will be the ruler, who will defeat these kings, these uh, this great kingdoms. And for him to be born in Bethlehem, that's a complete upset of expectations that they were looking at. And of course, that hints to other surprises that the life of Jesus would throw, right? Jesus is not the king, the kind of king that they were expecting. Um, to climax it all, Jesus died almost as a criminal in the cross uh, beside two thieves. So this also, of course, hints at the, uh, the upsetting of expectations that, uh, that the life of Jesus would bring about. Um, so Jesus is the, the peace from Bethlehem that Micah uh, prophesies about. So I want to close with uh, a more, hopefully a more relevant uh, reflection on waiting. Uh, I think I can go to the next, uh, the next slide as well. Um, so I want to leave just these two thoughts uh, as we think about what it means to wait. First of all, I think what it means is we, we wait for the peace of Jesus. It is 
Christ that makes this message of peace relevant and meaningful to us. Because it's not just about the Assyrians, uh, but it's about the coming ruler, uh, as Micah says, whose greatness will be to the ends of the earth. Uh, this is the peace that was foretold. And we who live in this side of history are blessed because we know what happened. Uh, for the people in the Old Testament, I say this all the time, but uh, for people in the Old Testament, they were only looking forward. They were anticipating. They don't know how it's going to work out, but they're just looking forward. We, on the other hand, we have seen uh, what happened with Jesus. And Jesus is that uh, peace uh, from Bethlehem. Uh, and, and what it means is that Christ brings about that transformation uh, of sword to plowshares. Uh, guns to plowshares, right? Violence, a tool that is used for violence has been re reworked to be a tool to generate something worthwhile, something blessing to others. A tool of destruction has been, has been transformed to be a tool to feed people, a tool to nourish others, a tool to bring communities together. So that is what Christ does. And I think in this world today, we look at the news, like we know that this is such a timely uh, motif, the sword to plowshares. We have Ukraine war just um, very close to us happening. We have the conflicts happening, the, uh, the violence being done in Iran, for example. And in fact, I'd just like to highlight just one incident. One year to the day today, December 4, uh, there were uh, 16, 14 civilians who were killed in, in Nagaland, the state that Vime comes from. Um, just as a mistaken identity by the, uh, the military, the Indian government, um, Indian army. And to this day, there has been no justice. There's no accountability being brought forward. What happened? Who is to be blamed? There's no, uh, as far as we know, there's no set, uh, nothing brought this complete injustice, silence in that. And people have kind of moved on. And we live in a world, and I bring, I say that to just to highlight that uh, we live, we, uh, even us in our the, the communities, we live with the history of violence, right? We live with impacts of war, gun, seeing guns in the streets every single day in, uh, when we're a child, when we're children. Families, we've got immediate families, uh, relatives who were affected, who were even killed. We've got children who are affected by the trauma of losing their parents, and obviously wives and many other who are affected. Like in the, it's there in the memory identity, and also it affects. Perception of ourselves, who are we, who are others, why, why is there, why, what is state? I'm trying, what I'm trying to say is this violence affects every, every, almost everything about our life. And when, we th when I think about this imagery of sword to plowshare, um, and as another one artist, uh, Mennonite artist in the US, uh, kind of uh, interpreted it, guns to plowshare. Uh, she collected all these guns that were confiscated and she made a uh, uh, art piece uh, uh, made of that guns into a plowshare. And if I think about this motif of uh, sword being transformed to plowshare, guns being transformed from the plowshare, I think that's such um, that's such a, a a motif that brings me joy. Right? Uh, that um, there will be peace, there will be uh, reconciliation, ultimately, and that comes through Jesus. So I think when, of course, we, we, we pray for these situations in our prayer meetings, some of you will know. And I think when we pray for these situations, we are, first of all, lamenting these things that happen around the world. 
we are acknowledging and lamenting and uh, identifying with these people in a very small way, to, uh, admittedly. And we are also praying for the hope that we have in Christ, that one day the sword will be transformed to plowshare, guns will transform to plowshare. But also in another sense, in our more lived experiences, uh, I think we should not minimize the everyday experiences of embattlement. We live, in, in some sense, in one aspect or the other, we live embattled lives. Maybe in our relations, maybe in our, in our, in our health, maybe in the dissonance that we feel with, with our, our friends, our communities, dissonance that we feel with creation, right? Uh, it seems like we are making progress two steps forward and almost to make three steps backward. And we live these embattled lives uh, and we know people, even if it's not uh, you yourself who experience it. We live embattled lives. And I think it would be not be too much of a stretch to, uh, to receive this message of the peace of Jesus in that moment, in that experience of embattlement, uh, that the promise of Christ coming, the peace from Bethlehem, the redemption, the reconciliation, that is for us in our embattled lives as well. So we wait, first of all, for the peace of Jesus. We look forward, we pray, we hope, and we, uh, we actively pursue it in our lives as well. Uh, but I just want to also highlight a second point, which is to wait for God's peace among the little. And I want to work, rework this as a metaphor. Uh, the way God works is, as we have seen from the story of Bethlehem, he uses the little, he uses the humble to shame or to, to, uh, to outdo the powerful. And it seems like that is the way that God has worked in history. And I think it's wise for us, especially in Advent, to attune our eyes and attune our hearts to the little around us, uh, to the weak and to the vulnerable, uh, maybe to children, to the helpless, uh, to attune ourselves to the little. Think of, think of the, the, the religious teachers and King Herod in the temples and the way they were completely overtaken by something small happening in Bethlehem, in the back, backwaters of Bethlehem. Of course, that teaches us to be humble in our uh, perceived greatness, right? So, as we think about Advent, I would like to encourage, let's turn to the little, uh, not to patronize them, uh, not just to help them, but the, I think the amazing thing about this story is that uh, it's, it's not telling us to help the, help, help the helpless. It's telling us to learn to receive blessing from the, from the little, to be humble in that process, right? to realize that God is able to work his redemption through the little. So it's not telling us to step up and be, be, uh, be domineering and help those who can't help. Of course, that is obviously important. But the real message here is that he's telling us to receive from the least, receive from the little. little. Peace and healing of embattled communities come to us through the little. We have a peculiar king, so to say, who brings security and who, who brings peace for little embattled people. And all this through humble origins, through Christ who is of humble origins. And I just want to read out one last uh, quote from uh, uh, an Old Testament scholar in Princeton Theological Seminary. He writes, she writes like this, the irony of Advent is that this season of preparation anticipates a hopeful expectation of that which is unexpected. 
Those who have heard the scriptures so many times, year after year of Advent celebration, may have trouble fully appreciating this startling logic. Yet, perhaps, we need to look no further than our own lives. Micah calls us to see God's faithfulness in surprising ways, to look where we might not expect. Micah's oracle serves as a reminder that the promises of God's covenant is certain, yet the expression of its fulfillment is not always predictable. And I think that's a wonderful thought for us to uh, take into Advent and as we look forward to Christmas. So let's pray and then we'll continue singing. Our Father in heaven, we pray that our hearts and our eyes will be attuned and alert to your peace. Help us to reach beyond the things that may overwhelm us in life or the things that distract us in our comfort. Our great fear is that you may be among us, speaking and strengthening us, and yet we would be blind to know it or we would completely miss and not reach out to you. So Lord, teach us to wait and to look for you, to not be satisfied until we find your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.